Right, thanks, um, Ollie. Um, well, I'm going to begin with the Ukraine uh, war. And um, we seem to have a sort of contradictory picture of uh, Zelensky ordering, forcing um, people to actually move out uh, of the Donbass uh, region. Uh, meanwhile, we have um, very heavily publicized um, promise um, from Kiev that it's going to begin soon an offensive in um, the south and retake uh, Kherson. Um, already we've had um, all manner of reports in the Western media of um, these uh, latest uh, deliveries of um, accurate um, American missiles being used against the connecting bridge uh, from the south um, to the other side of um, Kyrgyzstan. So the Russian authorities there say that, well, the bridge has been hit, um, uh, but we've only barred so far um, civilian traffic. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know how effective these weapons are. Um, you would have thought they would be more effective in terms of closing, destroying uh, a bridge. Either way, uh, one presumes that this uh, publici publicity for the forthcoming offensive is simply because they recognize that the other side, i.e. Uh, the Russians have got uh, spy satellites up there in space, they've got uh, drones, they've got people on the ground, um, i.e. sympathizers, um, on the other side of the front line, who will be reporting back what the armed forces of uh, uh, Ukraine, the Kiev uh, government uh, is doing. So what's the point in keeping it quiet sort of type idea? It's like uh, with Putin having lost the initial bid to take Kiev, then tells us that the second phase is the true aim uh, of this war uh, which is to take um, the Donbass. We don't know um, what will happen. We don't know whether this is a, a clever feint uh, by uh, the Kiev regime. Is it withdrawing people from Donbass, pretending uh, that it's going to strike south, but in reality we get a devastating move in the east? Um, I, I'm simply in no position uh, to judge. Uh, that one. But what I wanted to do is um, sort of um, do a bit of if, 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 not looking backwards, uh, but looking forwards and, and just uh, take the idea that if uh, the Ukrainian forces were successful in uh, retaking uh, Kherson, and one presumes that they will be successful um, with the help not only of um, deliveries of um, US, um, you know, accurate uh, missiles and drones and artillery pieces, but also with the help of um, US satellites and US intelligence. And also, I would guess, uh, with um, embedded uh, US advisors. 
Um, so if there is a successful uh, offensive by Ukraine, it won't simply uh, be Ukrainian forces that are involved. It will be Ukrainian forces plus American equipment, uh, plus, I would guess, uh, American, you know, um, staffers, you know, high ups uh, uh, in the military, uh, giving them tactical and strategic um, advice. So I just wanted to imagine, and it isn't an imag imagined uh, scenario that uh, uh, the Russian forces are defeated. Um, Kyrgyzstan is uh, retaken. What then happens? And basically what I want to use this uh, supposed uh, future is to basically examine the war aims uh, of both sides. Um, one could imagine, for example, from a Western point of view, that if um, Russia suffers such a, a, a defeat, um, that could trigger um, rebellion um, inside the securocracy um, uh, in Moscow, i.e. Uh, top brass in the army and top people in the FSB. Uh, they, they could uh, sacrifice Putin who's reportedly ill and say that this war was all his fault. Um, that's a, a, a possibility. On the other hand, we, we know, we think we know, uh, that the aim of the United States is not simply to push uh, Russia out of Ukraine and to inflict a defeat on Russia in Ukraine. Their determination is to inflict such a defeat uh, that Russia cannot do the same thing again. And if we look back far enough, back to that book by uh, Brzezinski, um, The Great Chess uh, Game, what we have there is one of many, I'm sure, uh, but what we have there is, is uh, plans um, to dismember Russia uh, itself in the same way that um, the Soviet Union uh, was uh, dismembered in 19... 91. So Brzezinski talked about uh, dividing up uh, Russia into three uh, different uh, republics, uh, for example, basically an East, a center and uh, a, a European uh, Russia. But of course, you know, um, unintended consequences um, could easily follow. So, for example, uh, if uh, and it is a big if, and uh, I'm not saying it's an inevitable, though I think that that, you know, I think there will be a Russian defeat, but that's just on balance. If there is a Russian defeat, uh, while it's true that the um, army and uh, the FSB might shove um, Putin aside and tell him to go to a retirement home, that, in my view at least, would also go hand in hand uh, with a bid to save Russia, uh, not to allow uh, the rise of another Yeltsin and uh, basically selling out to uh, the West um, and, uh, you know, come and buy up our resources. Uh, yeah, let's see uh, the disintegration um, of our beloved uh, mother country, uh, but quite the opposite, um, that if, for example, it was merely a palace uh, coup, uh, my guess would be is that far from throwing you know, themselves into the arms of um, Biden and NATO and um, advanced Western capitalism, what they will do 
is throw themselves into the arms of China. Uh, we already have a uh, no holds barred, no limit um, alliance supposedly between uh, China and uh, Russia. But yes, basically constituting Russia as uh, the Austro-Hungary um, of the Chinese, I don't call it empire, but of China in the same way that we saw uh, Prussia uh, defeat uh, Austro-Hungary in war. And the result of that actually was that uh, Austro-Hungary, which had previously been the dominant power in Central um, uh, Europe, became a subordinate power uh, to Germany. Obviously, we saw that in World War II, the Central uh, Powers. So that, that would be in the interests of China. That would be in the interests of the elite uh, in Russia um, and actually um, uh, would represent a, a pyrrhic victory, therefore, uh, for the West in Ukraine. They, they gain Ukraine, uh, but leave a much stronger China um, uh, in place as a result. And it's clear, at least from, from my angle, uh, that the ultimate uh, aim isn't uh, Russia, uh, the real rival uh, to the United States is not um, Russia, which is, I don't know where that would stand in terms of global GDP, it depends on oil prices, but, you know, it would be about the level of an Italy, uh, maybe even when the, the ruble is low, and I know it's high at the moment and oil prices are low, uh, even at the level of uh, a Netherlands, and I say even at the level of Netherlands, I don't know what the population of the Netherlands is, but as a throwaway, 25 million, where Russia is a, has got a population of some 150 uh, uh, million. So, so Russia, while it's got big armed forces and it's still, you know, in spite of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, still the world's biggest country uh, in terms of territory, economically speaking, it's certainly not in the first rank. Uh, indeed, you know, you could argue uh, that economically speaking, it, it's uh, a third rate uh, power. It's powerful, um, but it isn't a serious rival in terms of global domination uh, to the United States. The only serious rival uh, is China. Uh, you can't count uh, Europe at the present time. All you need to do is look at uh, the, the, the latest possibilities of a far-right uh, government in Italy um, to, to recognise the instability of the EU, the rebellion when it comes to oil uh, by Hungary, um, the fact that um, America is quite willing to sacrifice Germany uh, in its war with Russia. I, in, in America, what you've got is a boom going on in terms of the arms industry, Oil, uh, in terms of imports, are irrelevant, you know, in American terms. But clearly in Germany, uh, massive price hike for oil and gas, uh, Putin switching on, switching off uh, uh, supplies uh, could, you know, lead to a severe depression uh, in Germany uh, this winter. And not just Germany. Uh, but the German economic space. So Germany is the dominant power in the EU, but has grouped around itself uh, countries like the Czech Republic, Hungary, I've already mentioned, but also Poland and uh, the Netherlands, which form a sort of a sort of greater Germany 
uh, when it comes to um, economics. Either way, uh, the only serious rival that the United States has got uh, is China. And uh, I think we should view uh, the struggle at the present time uh, in Ukraine uh, in that uh, context. So yes, uh, maybe the United States scores a victory uh, over Russia in Ukraine, but that could potentially have the consequences of actually strengthening uh, China and not weakening uh, China. And uh, Russia's found it, from what we gather, pretty easy so far uh, to survive um, sanctions and limits on oil imports. The price of oil has gone up and they've simply exported to uh, China and India uh, and other uh, such uh, uh, countries. So although Russia's taken an economic hit, uh, something like 7.5% in terms of its GDP, to all intents and purposes, um, it's, it's shown a resilience when it comes to the overall e economy. Now that might change uh, the longer the war goes on and the longer sanctions last when it comes to particular components, uh, for example, so I'm thinking microchips, electronic uh, components of uh, other, other sorts and other things that I haven't got a, a clue about. Either way, um, uh, one would presume uh, that what the West is calculating on is not just um, a regime change in Moscow, not just defeating Russia um, um, in Ukraine, but also uh, whether they succeed is, um, um, well, I don't know, but what I would guess that they're banking on is triggering some sort of color uh, revolution. Um, and bringing in perhaps, I mean, the obvious one is Navalny from wherever he is in Siberia would come in as the, the Russian Nelson Mandela, and perhaps, yes, would then sell out uh, Russia to the West. That's what they're hoping for. Whether they get it, uh, as I said, that's uh, 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 another question uh, indeed. Okay, so let's ask ourselves another question. What are Russia's uh, war aims? Well, my own, I, have, I'm, I don't apologize for getting uh, it wrong, <laughs> simply because I didn't think that Russia could win in Ukraine, and therefore I didn't think it would do it. Uh, but it's done it. It's done it because of uh, NATO expansionism. And that isn't about an immediate uh, NATO membership for Ukraine. But clearly the ambition of NATO is to surround uh, Russia from the south, but also surround China from the north. So one would guess that if Russia is defeated, for example, in Kherson, that there will be, there will be the temptation maybe to put another uh, a chess piece onto the board. For example, uh, one that would come to my mind is Georgia, uh, not a big country, but a country that's smarting uh, under previous Russian a defeat, a country that has talked about joining NATO, maybe that would be put on, um, you know, um, you know move, moved forward. Uh, there are other pieces, of course, that uh, the United States could use. Either way, Putin acted, uh, failed in terms of phase one. Um, I don't think it was a clever ruse. I don't think that this was uh, brilliant minds in the Kremlin um, hey, we're going to try to, well, we pretend to try to take Kiev. Meanwhile, we're playing a much bigger, cleverer uh, game. I think they simply lost 
uh, and they lost for a whole number of reasons, logistics, bad intelligence. Yeah, uh, they didn't assess uh, Ukraine correctly. They didn't uh, factor in uh, NATO training uh, of the Ukrainian army since 2014. Either way, they lost initially. And what we've seen is grinding progress uh, in the East. Something that, um, you know, a sort of warfare that I must admit that I didn't expect. Um, you know, we all knew about the revolution in technology with drones and uh, missiles and all the rest of it. But how, you know, how downgraded the importance of tanks has become, how much of target tanks uh, have become. And how should we put it? the unwillingness uh, to commit uh, to, you know, large scale air uh, warfare. And I'm talking about planes, not missiles. That has surprised me. I, I would have thought that Russia would establish air superiority extremely quickly and just take out from the air, uh, you know, batteries of Ukrainian missiles. But hey, uh, we've now got, and we've all known it since the days of Afghanistan, we've now got shoulder launched. Uh, missiles, not only against tanks that have proved uh, amazingly effective, you know, we've got stinger missiles uh, that people can be trained up to use against aircraft, uh, and I'm talking about jet aircraft, but also, of course, helicopters. Uh, we saw that in Afghanistan, and uh, we see the results. So it's, in a certain sense, what we're seeing is, is something closer, um, you know, uh, to World War One. Uh, than World War II. Either way, um, looking at uh, uh, Russia's war aims, um, I, I don't buy into the idea that uh, what Russia is doing is saving uh, Russian speakers or the Russian Russians in Ukraine from genocide. Uh, I, I just don't uh, buy that one. Um, in the same way, I don't buy uh, the idea that uh, the Russian forces are in Ukraine to commit genocide. You have to stretch the definition of genocide so far to me uh, that the term becomes uh, uh, meaningless. Uh, but what they are uh, determined to do, or what they were initially determined to do, and I think they still are, uh, they could succeed. Uh, and that is basically to wipe Ukraine off the face of the map and whether they constitute uh, some sort of transitional uh, republic that's aligned with Russia, um, you know, a rump Ukraine, whether they take the whole lot, who knows. Um, but one would gather uh, that the aim is to reincorporate Ukraine into Russia. Uh, and I do mean Russia. Um, this isn't a recreation of the Soviet Union. Um, if, if you want to call it anything, it's a neo-Russia. Uh, and Putin or his successors could win. We shouldn't discount that possibility. As I said, my feeling is that because of economics and the size of Ukraine, uh, NATO will win this war. It could, as I said, unintended consequences in terms of paradoxically strengthening China. Either way, we shouldn't discount the possibility of Russia winning. If it wins, uh, this will be a big blow uh, against the United States and its prestige, and it's had many a blow uh, in recent years, and uh, that will strengthen um, China. Uh, it will not strengthen uh, the working class in any direct uh, sense, that we're not in the situation, unfortunately, 
of World War One. I. I don't mean that with you know millions and millions of people dying, but we're not in the situation of where Lenin and Zinoviev uh, could look at the European war breaking out and the collapse of social democratic parties and be supremely confident that because of the training, you know, for a generation, two generations of uh, workers in Marxism and socialism, that the movement in Europe would revive and revolution uh, would come on to the agenda. I don't think we can have that uh, sort of um, confidence um, about the near term. I, I think, unfortunately, we're in for a much longer haul uh, when it comes uh, to the working class. So Russia could win and um, yeah, then go on uh, to look at further uh, advances, maybe come to a deal with the United States where it's allowed to integrate in uh, to the world economy. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Just a quick um, uh, footnote um, on all of that. Uh, I don't take uh, genocide seriously. I don't take denazification uh, seriously. And nor do I take the battle um, between um, one atrocity versus another, who did this, who did that. My own take on it is that the left will be very foolish in starting to say, well, that was Ukraine that did that, or that was Russia uh, that did that. Uh, we, I think we simply need to say that the first casualty of war uh, is the truth, but that shouldn't lead us uh, to underestimate uh, the importance of propaganda uh, in terms of this war. Clearly, the United States is playing a propaganda war, uh, both aimed at Russia. It's got the hope, hasn't it? After all, at least my argument is of a color revolution. So it's got to depict Russia as barbaric and uh, Russian forces as failing and Russia suffering terribly under uh, sanctions. But equally, we need to understand that this propaganda uh, is also designed for a home market, i.e. the United States itself. There's a pretty broad, I would uh, argue, uh, bipartisan um, consensus in the United States. The only exception to that, it isn't from the left, uh, tragically, the, you know, the DSA formally takes a uh, pox on both houses, but that's not true in Congress. In Congress, they voted uh, for this huge package of uh, armaments and uh, other support for the Ukrainian Regime. I don't know what uh, comrades on the left are doing about it uh, in the DSA, but they ought to be in full-scale rebellion uh, over this uh, question. They should be talking about expelling people. They should be talking about bringing these people in line and under the discipline um, of uh, uh, the collective. But also there's a proper propaganda war going on in Britain. And of course, what we see again is a, a bipartisan a consensus. And what's tragic about it, I mean, the bourgeoisie won't really care, but what's tragic about it is that not only includes most of the Labour left, obviously momentum, can you really call that left? Well, only just, but the LRC, Labour Representation Committee, and, and lots of uh, these other little groups uh, that I sort of vaguely remember from my childhood, um, you know, marching in London, uh, to um, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, Victory 2, Viet Cong, these same people, well, yeah, actually same people uh, with, um, or, you know, organisations change names, but the people often remain the same, now going around shouting, arm, arm Ukraine. Well, you don't need to shout arm, arm Ukraine. 
The British government is doing it and it's being praised by Zelensky. And of course, the Biden uh, uh, government in America is doing it uh, with the full consent of the Republican Party. And I think it was, wasn't it 15 votes against from the isolationist right? Isn't that a disgrace? It's the right that rebelled uh, against this, obviously not for our reasons, um, but it wasn't the left. There's not been a leave neck um, uh, amongst them. Okay, um, right. Let's move on. Okay, Tory leadership contest. I think we can not declare the winner, but I think we know the winner, don't we? Uh, it's going to be Liz Truss. What you need to do is read, you know, the mainstream right-wing uh, press, so the Times, the Telegraph, the Daily Mail. I don't know about the Sun, uh, but those papers basically come out uh, for Liz Truss. And then you've got these, um, hmm, I call them heavyweights uh, in the parliamentary party. So Ben Wallace, the defence minister, you know, someone who has fancied to be a leader and then obviously decided not to for whatever reasons. But also, isn't it interesting uh, that Hunt uh, has come out for trust, so from the left. Tugendhat has also come out for how, where you exactly you place uh, Tugendhat, I don't know, other than saying that he's, um, I don't know, MI6, <laughs> Army Intelligence, uh, you know, the State Corps, uh, either way, uh, that seems to be uh, where they're going. I know they don't have a vote, but amongst the uh, Tory rank and file, you know, uh, these people coming out for Liz Trust, the editorials will make a difference. Okay, so I'll um, just take a step back from that and ask the question, why not Rishi? I'm not convinced by the story that... Um, uh, the Tory rank and file are just a load of racist bigots. And the reason they won't vote Rishi uh, is because uh, his parents had their origins in East Africa and uh, they're Hindu, Asian, African. And uh, I don't really buy uh, that one, nor do I buy the idea that because he's a multimillionaire, uh, the figure that I read personally, not his wife, personally, 200 million. Uh, makes him a lot, well, makes him by far the richest uh, individual in the House of Commons. I don't believe that either. Um, I haven't read enough um, on the Tory party. Maybe there isn't the stuff there to read, but I have been reading. And when I come across, hey, we've studied the Tory party, and I'm talking about the rank and file out there in constituency land, I've sort of grabbed hold of it or looked at it on screen and got a look at this. Okay, so what have I gathered so far? Well, the Tory party reached a recent high of 200,000, and that was about Brexit, that was about Boris Johnson getting Brexit done and all the rest of it. So a 200,000 high, and it's been down uh, ever since. So the, the general estimate, and they don't publish figures, the general estimate is 160,000 uh, people, way down, um, you know, in terms of uh, the Tory party at its peak. So in the 50s, for example, maybe into the 60s, the Tory party had a million uh, members. And uh, if you were young and you were from a certain class of people or aspired to become a certain class of people, you go along to the young Tories in order to find a marriage partner, uh, for example. But, you know, if you talk to people 
in uh, small town England uh, of the right class, i.e. the sort of middle class, and you talked about the party, they would know exactly what you mean and you'd come over sort of if you had the right accent as one of them. Nowadays, who are the, the Tory party? Well, as I said, 160,000, and I read uh, that these people come from the better off classes. So if we want to use advertising terms, uh, they are A and Bs. And I don't think A and Bs would look upon Rishi Sunak and say, oh, he's rich. So I don't really buy the Nadine Doris uh, bit about his 400 pound shoes where she wears earrings from some shop that I don't know about that costs £2.50 or whatever the hell it is. Um, no, I mean, to me, uh, the Tory rank and file are precisely aspirational and they admire money. So, you know, if we look back at the Tory party, if anything, um, you know, Ted Heath was looked down upon, a grammar school boy. Um, but if we look further back, I presume, I know, well, I know that's before the rank and file had the vote, but Harold Macmillan and up to Heath, um, you know, the Tory party leaders, you know, all boasted at some sort of aristocratic pedigree. Uh, Ted Heath represented a break uh, there. But, you know, you think of David Cameron, uh, not exactly poor. We, we saw that, didn't we, with the Panama Papers? His dad, not only his dad, but himself, how rich he was. He wasn't mega rich. He was only worse than like 15 million. Well, Liz Truss, as I understand it, that poor, poor woman from Leeds, isn't she? She's only worth eight million. So I, I don't buy this idea. This to me is very much the left projecting itself um, onto the Tory party. You could have an explanation with race, with Rishi. And that would be that if you take this 160,000, they're a bit like me. Uh, they're over 55, uh, they're white, they're male, and they overwhelmingly live in London and the Southeast. So they're massively concentrated. And therefore, when they're looking for a candidate to win, they might say to themselves, well, out there in Clacton, out there on the South Coast, up there in um, Red Wall land, uh, Rishi won't go down well. That's a possibility. Um, so they might say, well, all those people are racists and therefore we better not put up uh, Rishi. I mean, it's a possible explanation. I don't know uh, 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 it. Uh, but as I said, you know, we don't know the Tory party well enough and we ought to learn uh, about the Tory party. But uh, as I said, uh, what we now have is a situation where having been uh, the MPs uh, favourite and one presumes that they also had the same thing in mind. Um, who's going to be a winning um, leader in terms of a general election? And they went overwhelmingly, didn't they, uh, with Rishi? Um, Liz Truss only came in second uh, late in the day, uh, so one presumes the same process is going on with them, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but with the, the rank and file, what we know um, is that um, they're not going for him, they're going for Liz Truss. Um, and what he's doing is um, in, in increasingly desperate. Um, so in my uh, uh, estimate, estimate um, his uh, anti-woke plus his anti-migrants, I mean, the next thing they'll be proposing to do with migrants is either take them out into a boat into the middle of the Atlantic and let them swim or shoot them off to outer space, you know, to show how 
how anti-migrant uh, uh, they are. And now we have with uh, Rishi is the proposal, I, my heart drops every time I hear it from a Tory politician. What we need to do is revive grammar schools. Grammar schools still exist, of course, I know that, in Kent, for example, uh, but there can't be any new grammar schools. That's, that's how things start. So what grammar schools tend to do is open a, an additional wing or a different, a new outlet. Either way, uh, this is the Tory party uh, mantra, revive uh, grammar schools. And again, that gets middle-class people going because basically what the offer is in their heads is that what you do is you get a public school education, you know, with Latin and all that sort of stuff and you play rugger, uh, but you don't have to pay fees for it. That's really what's um, on offer to these people. So uh, they all look at their um, little children and they say, well, yes, they, they, they can uh, uh, benefit uh, from that. And they don't take into account the possibility that they end up in the shit schools, um, you know, what used to be called the secondary moderns. What did the Tory, what did, was it one of Blair's people that called these... Um, can't remember the name of it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to go there. Anyway, I'm merely saying that Rishi is increasingly desperate. and He knows that the rank and file Tories are way to the right um, uh, compared with the parliamentary Conservative Party, which is way to the right compared with what it was. So British politics, in my view, is moving still to the right. The Tory party in Parliament is moved to the right. The, the left of the Tory party was purged viciously uh, by Boris Johnson. Tory party rank and file is overwhelmingly uh, pro-Brexit. And therefore we have this paradox of the former Lib Dem, the former opponent of the monarchy, the former Remainer Liz Truss dressing herself up as Mrs Thatcher and also dressing herself up in the, um, the garb of a Brexiteer. So she's uh, the champion of uh, the one that will slay uh, the Northern Ireland protocol. She's the one uh, that will destroy all EU legislation in British law by 2023. 20, uh, and of course, she's also, uh, you know, going with the, the Thatcher mythology uh, with anti-trade union laws, of course, something that Rishi will echo. But she's come out and said within 30 days of uh, assuming the um, position of prime minister, I will be introducing legislation um, that weakens the power of the trade unions. And specifically, what I've heard uh, mentioned is unions such as the RMT, such as ASLEF, one presumes Unison in the hospitals, being forced to provide a minimum level of service. I, they, they blackleg on themselves, they scab on themselves. So you make strikes uh, ineffective. How that would actually work? Uh, well, you can make it work by finding trade unions uh, but on the other hand, you might find um, that workers go on strike anyway. Uh, that's for the future. We can look at that and discuss that. But she's also talking about upping uh, the poll requirement. Well, all you need to do is look at the current polling that's going on with unions and the majorities they're getting for strike action on good turnouts is massive. And the explanation is so simple. Uh, and that is that workers are being threatened, not with a marginal pay cut, but with a substantial pay cut. And so, you know, in, a, in, in conditions of where people now are struggling uh, to pay bills, well, imagine what it's going to be like for these workers under conditions of 10, 11 percent inflation uh, this winter. 
uh, with um, gas uh, and electricity uh, prices and of course petrol uh, uh, prices to get to and from work, do the shopping, take the kids to school and all you have to do in most towns and cities in Britain, um, you know, given public transport and, and the sort of culture uh, we have at the present. Okay, so I think Liz Trust will win. Uh, I think that what she'll attempt to do uh, is to play, use an American term, play hardball uh, when it comes to trade union strikes, which will be breaking out spontaneously uh, in an awful lot of private companies, and they will settle, I think, but big set piece battles in the public sector, uh, she will attempt to take on the public sector uh, unions. And remember, that Thatcher didn't do that. Uh, she bided her time and, uh, you know, laid the ground and uh, uh, conducted many, um, you know, feints. And but she was prepared to compromise until the big one, uh, which was 80. Well, she was elected 79. She waited till 84, the beginning of 84, before taking on the NUM with all the preparations that they did in terms of building up stocks and uh, doing contracts in terms of importing coal. Uh, changing the power mix and all the rest of it, getting the police ready. Um, so we don't know. What we do know um, is that Mick Lynch is the general secretary of uh, RMT. We know his response and his response was, well, if Liz Truss is elected, I will campaign for the TUC to call a general strike. Now, there's one thing uh, to get the TUC to call a one day protest. So we all go out uh, on a Wednesday and we'll go to Hyde Park or wherever the hell we we go and we go, trust, trust, out, 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 Tory, Tory, Tories, out, out, out. And we then go back to work and the police will, you know, escort us to and from and there won't be any trouble. And um, hey, that's all over. They've let off steam and the TUC's done its bit. And from the platform, people are saying, oh, we'll fight them on the we're going to, you know, whatever. So, yeah, that's possible. If Mick Lynch means by a general strike, on the other hand, an indefinite general strike, then what you have to say um, is that one, <laughs> I don't think in a million years the TUC will be persuaded to call a general strike. That's the first thing I would say. Um, it, you know, in the middle of the miners' strike, we were convinced that the TUC would not call the general strike. The, or even any general strike. So we said with, with or without the TUC, a general strike, that, that had a sort of possibility uh, 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 to it. And maybe, okay, so maybe uh, Lynch is thinking of coordination uh, with other unions such as Unite and Unison and, uh, you know, ASLEF and TUSA and FBU and the University College Union and you know, Barristers, I mean, you just the list just goes on endlessly, maybe um, either way. Uh, what I would say is if you do that um, and uh, strikes reach an intensity, um, you know, of the sort that we saw in 1926, i.e. a general strike with the TUC, but without the TUC, then what that poses is the necessity of uh, ensuring supplies. So you're going to let people die in hospital? No, of course you're not. But you're just going to let the bourgeoisie, the, you know, the, the management say who, who does what? No, you shouldn't do that. Unions need to be in charge. And that raises the whole question of 
workers control over production, workers control over transport. All you need to do is look at some old pictures of 26 and what you'll see is lorries moving, but with the permission of the TUC, right? So that raises the question of workers control. Also, of course, what such a strike raises, especially in our conditions, is defending picket lines. If you want to impose picket lines, you've got to prepare to defend them. Six people ain't enough when the police come along and say, move on. This is a secondary picket. picket. Uh, you aren't, you know, you're not engaged in legal action with that employer. Uh, move on. Uh, so you've got to be prepared to defend. You've got to be prepared to defy the law. That means, for example, and again, she waited ages. I can't remember the exact chronology of it, um, but Thatcher uh, waited a considerable time before she started moving in and taking over NUM headquarters. And I think the first one I remember uh, was the takeover of the headquarters of the South Wales uh, NUM, um, which is, you know, the, the law. You know, you break the law, we'll, we'll fine you, we'll take money. Um, um, off you. Um, and that really raises um, to me, uh, you know, the limitation of the trade union bureaucracy. The trade union bureaucracy will be fighting, of course, for improved conditions, um, defending the existing conditions of its workers. Of course they will. That's what they're in business to do. But we should also understand that they're exactly like merchants. They're merchants in labor power and they want the best price for their labor power. But what they're not prepared to do, with very few exceptions, is to say, we'll have our headquarters taken away, we'll have our bank balance taken away, we'll have my pension taken away, uh, my wage uh, salary uh, taken away. Um, trading in bureaucrats, in other words, um, might be on our side when it comes to battles between employers, or for that matter, the government, but they are essentially uh, a middle class um, element, a privileged uh, element that wants to defend those privileges. Okay, so what, what do things pose? Well, of course they pose the necessity of a party under these conditions, um, and there the left, I think, is in a bad position. And that's why, I, I, as I said, in terms of my remarks about Ukraine, uh, we cannot look to immediate uh, solutions here. They're, the problems are obvious and, and terrible problems that we face, both in Ukraine with war, uh, with standard living when it comes to work, but also, uh, you know, one cannot but mention the weather a few weeks ago and how that's being linked quite rightly uh, by uh, weather forecasters uh, to the climate and I think um, the likelihood of um, the world uh, not keeping climate to 1%, uh, but actually, clearly, it's on course to go over 1.5% uh, uh, sometime sooner rather than later with unimaginable uh, consequences. Because at the moment, it isn't just a question, it goes over 1.5% and then it somehow stops there. Uh, the danger is that not only are they still putting more CO2 and other such uh, gases into the atmosphere, but you get a runaway effect that's quite uh, conceivable but I, i'm not going to go there because i don't know enough about it and we, we we can't we can't predict because we don't know what factors are involved all we can pose is that that is a distinct danger and we know that uh, that's beyond argument okay so okay i want to now come to 
the Ford inquiry, and I'm not going to go into the ins and outs, all 168 pages of it. Um, we have had comrades that have gone through it and they've reported back that what it is is a typical lawyer's report um, that on the one hand this, on the other hand that. Um, if you're on the left and you read it, you would basically say, though, that you're vindicated, that the um, labour bureaucracy, uh, crucially in um, Victoria Street, but also throughout the country, um, basically um, did people um, in a completely unjust fashion. People were expelled. Uh, people were, you know, branded anti-Semites. Um, a whole campaign of dirt uh, was thrown at the left, and that was unjustifiable, uh, according to Ford, basically. But what he says about the other side, of course, I, the left was engaging in factionalism, which you have to go, well, yeah, um, Ford, well, isn't that the nature of politics? <laughs> you know, like, you do have sides, you, isn't, isn't what's going on in the Tory party uh, between Truss and uh, Rishi? Sunak, isn't that factionism? One side does this, one side does that. Yeah. So what was going on? He doesn't look at the bigger picture. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't look at the United States. He doesn't look at uh, Israel's role in the Middle East. He doesn't look at uh, Britain's role as number two or number one ally um, of the United States and uh, there and uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, the potential of breaking uh, that alliance and the potential of um, the Labour Party not being a trustworthy second, none of that gets uh, a look in. Nevertheless, the left can look at this report and say, well, we were vindicated. Okay, so what? So we have our friend Norman Thomas in this week's Weekly Worker, a nice comrade, comrade on the left of the Labour Party, um, now representing the Socialist Labour Network, um, saying, well, the headline sums it up, Keir Starmer must either act or quit. So he must either act against these bureaucrats, um, you know, in um, Victoria Street and elsewhere throughout the country that have unfairly attacked the left, you know, kicked out people like Chris Williamson, withdrawn the whip, I wonder who did that, uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He must either do that, act uh, against this crime uh, that was committed or quit. Well, it's a bit like with me in the TUC calling a general strike. I sort of listen to the question and I go, well, he's not going to act and he's not going to quit, uh, Norman. It's obvious. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think Norman is that naive to think, actually, uh, that he would do either one or the other. What Starmer will do is what he's done. Uh, and that is bat the whole thing aside and said, well, when he's asked about the Ford inquiry, he said, I've carried out... Uh, the recommendations of the Ford inquiry, I've got rid of factionalism because I've got rid of the left. The, the left barely exists now in the Labour Party, so I've dealt with it. Um, it's a bit like, uh, you know, Stalin with the factionalism in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, he looks at the 1920s, if he's asked about that in the early 30s, he just turns around and says, well, I've dealt with that. I got rid of factionalism. There's no factionalism. <laughs> All that remains is, is one faction. The rest are either expelled or locked up or have recanted. That, that's what's happened uh, to the left. So the, the, the question's been dealt with. Uh, this will not be something that will last. This will be a footnote in history. Okay, so 
So what about Sir Keir? I was reading, I just, I just looked up, you know, all this civil war going on in the Tory party and all the rest. I just thought I'd Google in last night uh, opinion polls. I didn't go and look at all the, the results, but I came out with one story, which I thought was interesting. Bombshell, bombshell, lifeline uh, for um, Sunak and Truss. Bloody hell, I thought, what result is this? Don't tell me the Tory party is ahead uh, of the Labour Party, because that's what the headline, that's, maybe that's how they wrote it, to get people to buy the paper. Well, hey, well, there's news for you, isn't it? That sub-editors uh, are tasked with getting readers hooked into stories that turn out to be no, no story at all. Anyway, so I read all, all in high excitement, this uh, bombshell result. And what I read is the Tories are on, 32% of the poll, up 3%, which does surprise me. On the other hand, polls can produce you, for, but it does surprise me. There you are in this middle of this contest, Bojo's gone nearly, um, and the Tories are up 3%. What's going on? Labour Party, 39% down one, which is statistically an, an irrelevance. And from, from Starmer's point of view, that's the result that he wants. So, all, I mean, to me, when I was told uh, at the beginning of, uh, you know, Starmer, Starmer's leadership. Oh, Starmer doesn't want to become prime minister. He can't because of statistics. He's just interested in purging the left. I just went, this is just rubbish. Uh, he's interested. He wants to become prime minister. It's surely blindingly obvious. And the sensible thing to do is if you want office, the sensible thing to do is steer to the right. That's a sensible thing to do, not from our point of view, but from his point of view, understand things from his point of view. In the same way we've been discussing the Tory party and trying to get into the heads of both MPs uh, and rank and file. We shouldn't think of, we shouldn't put ourselves, uh, we shouldn't project ourselves onto, onto these people. So from Starmer's point of view, that would be a good result, wouldn't it? 39% vote uh, for Labour, 32% result. For the Tories. Well, I'm not suggesting that that will re repeat itself. One would guess that Liz Truss, if she wins, I think she will win, would enjoy some honeymoon period, therefore the temptation, maybe the necessity of going for an early general election. Who knows? It just depends on polls. It depends on assessments. It depends on the economy. It depends on all manner uh, of different things. Either way, uh, what we have is not Starmer being an idiot, Starmer being useless, but from, a point, from the point of view of the right, which is interested in office, doing the sensible thing, not from the point of view of the left, but from the point of view of the right. And then we, then we come to the question of Sam uh, Terry and the sacking of, ta ta excuse me, Sam Terry. Why was he sacked? I'm not quite sure still, uh, because Starmer did put out, as far as I remember, the explicit instruction to his front bench, the shadow cabinet, do not go on a picket line. Well, there he was on a picket line um, outside Euston Station, uh, I think, and uh, being interviewed by uh, the press. And uh, Starmer now turns around, as I understand it, and said, well, I sacked him um, because he was you know, speaking out of turn. He was speaking not on his uh, transport remit, but all sorts of uh, other things. I don't know. Either way, it's a very messy picture. Uh, but we also hear from um, Sam himself, on the one hand, he's come out with reclaim our party, 
which is like, what? Um, that's an interesting one. And at the same time, he wants Keir Starmer to be prime minister and get him into number 10. Uh, what I would suggest um, about all of this is at least at the present time, uh, however weakened the left is, and it, it clearly is incredibly uh, weak at the moment, both at a rank and file level, we've seen the spineless um, um, campaign group, um, you know, and stop the war coalition and Ukraine and all that sort of type stuff. So the, the left is incredibly weak in the Labour Party. But what we see is the spontaneous reproduction um, of the Labour left um, in the form of their new lead leader, uh, which is now Sam Terry. Now, whether that split uh, goes deeper, uh, we all know about Angela Rayner and the fact that she actually turned up on a picket line last time round. Um, so maybe we actually have a split between the deputy and the leader in offing. I'm speculating. Nonetheless, um, you do, while the trade union link exists, uh, get this spontaneous um, generation or regeneration of the left. And the fact that you get people like um, Sharon Graham from Unite, um, let alone Mick Lynch, um, you know, attacking Starmer and how useless he is and how they ought to be lining up with the workers, um, I think illustrates that. And all I would say that at the end of the day, what Starmer will be turning around to Sharon Graham and uh, uh, other uh, union heads is saying, well, look, if I was in number 10, there wouldn't be these strikes because we'd come to a reasonable settlement. Certainly, I will not be in a position uh, where I'm going to promise I'll do the opposite uh, to introduce uh, legislation uh, that requires a minimum level of service um, or higher ballot uh, level. I'm going to treat you as partners along with the employers or some other guff like that. And there will be a truth uh, in that. And the trade union bureaucracy is basically faced with a fight uh, with the Tories that I've described, I don't think they're up for, um, or a Labour government under Keir Starmer that they might not think is the greatest thing. But nonetheless, given that choice, where will they put their money? I don't think they'll put their money into a general strike. I think they'll put their money and their activists to the extent that they can deploy them into the next general election to get a, a Starmer victory. So it shows you the contradictory nature, I think, still, uh, of the Labour Party. Now, it's of course quite feasible that Keir Starmer uh, does what uh, um, Blair couldn't do, and before him, um, what was his name? Gateskill uh, attempted in the 50s, and that's break the link uh, with the trade union movement and reconstitute uh, Labour as part of some great new version of the great Liberal Party of Gladstone, something like that's feasible, it's possible. Um, but while that hasn't happened, what we still have Labourism with the contradictions uh, that I've described. And to me, the, the way to break that uh, isn't uh, by uh, banking on the Labour left, which I, I think is a hopeless a project, it's, it's breaking uh, with Labourism and that requires a communist party. And a communist party is a practical project. A communist party can provide answers, not only to unions in terms of the day-to-day -day struggle of their members, it supplies an answer uh, to the big questions uh, of our day. And I don't think any question is bigger
than the climate question. How on earth uh, can we seriously expect uh, the capitalist state, however much it becomes authoritarian, to actually break this cycle of uh, global warming in a way that actually uh, doesn't damage the interests of millions upon millions uh, of people. I think the only realistic solution is the working class coming to power. And for the working class to come to power, they need a communist party, uh, i.e. a communist international uh, of some sort. Uh, that's it, Ollie. Thanks very much.